American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 24, The Virginia Resolves and the Colonial Boycotts. By 1769, colonists had begun boycotting British goods in earnest as a unified response to the Townsend Acts. The Virginian response to the Townsend Acts culminated in the second set of Virginia Resolves, written by George Mason and then presented to the Virginia House of Burgesses by none other than George Washington. In response, the royal governor of Virginia dissolved the Virginia House of Burgesses, the United States' oldest representative body. This action was added to the colonist list of grievances on the Declaration of Independence seven years later. Now, the Townsend Acts themselves were covered in detail in episode 20 of this series, but as a quick review, I will briefly point out the most salient features of the Acts. The Townsend Acts taxed glass, paint, lead, paper, and tea imported to the colonies. Lord Townsend thought that the tax would not meet with the resistance that had faced the earlier Stamp Act, as it was an external tax placed on imports rather than a direct internal tax foreign goods comparatively expensive and uncompetitive in the colonies. However, the colonists would not overlook the purpose of this new external tax. This tax was intercolonial and was not therefore designed for competitive advantage pursuant to the mercantilist system. It was designed for no other purpose than for the direct raising of revenue from the colonists. And the colonists cried foul, and they cried foul very loudly. Passed in 1767, It took some time for the colonists to organize a coherent and unified response to the Townsend Acts. The first unifying literature came from John Dickinson's letters from a Pennsylvania farmer. The letters solidified in the colonists' minds that the Townsend duties were the same in principle as the Stamp Act. No revenue-raising taxes could be levied on the colonies unless passed by their representative bodies. In early 1768, Samuel Adams drafted a circular letter to the Massachusetts Assembly. The letter rejected Parliament's acts, yet also recognized them as the supreme legislative power over the whole of the empire and sought reform and reconciliation. Virginia welcomed that letter and drafted a similar and even more strongly worded version of its own. The other colonies, however, were to a great extent apathetic. Protests and resistance to the duties may have disappeared had not the British government overreacted. The Townsend Acts had actually resulted in a net loss to the royal treasury, but the crown was, at this time, more interested in asserting its power over the colonists in North America than in actually cutting its losses. Tired of the colony's resistance, Parliament issued a proclamation ordering the disowning of the letters by the colonial legislatures, forbidding any endorsements of the letters, and the dissolution by the royal governors of any legislative body that violated those orders. The colonists were, of course, outraged. Instantly, legislatures endorsed the letters and deliberately violated the British orders. Across the colonies, royal governors then reacted by dissolving legislatures who merely moved elsewhere to meet and organize. After its dissolution, the Massachusetts Assembly moved across the street and passed a non-importation agreement set to begin on June 1, 1769, but to become void if the Townsend duties were repealed. However, the acts were not repealed. This method of non-importation of British goods spread southwards to New York, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and beyond. The boycott's success depended to a large extent on its location. 
Some areas enforced the boycott with intimidation and violence, while others did little to discourage imports from England. Overall, imports from Great Britain declined roughly 40%, a sizable loss for English merchants and colonial importers of English goods. The greatest success of the boycott, however, was its role as a unifying force in the colonies. Colonies looked internally for their necessary and unnecessary goods and found that they themselves could produce them. New craft guilds sprang up alongside Daughters of Liberty groups that organized the production and purchase of local products. Like the more successful Stamp Act boycotts four years prior, this boycott contributed to the growing sentiment that the colonies could do without British rule. It would be some time, however, before sentiment moved towards that they should do without British rule. Now, in Virginia, a 37-year-old George Washington voiced his support for the boycott by writing, At a time when our lordly masters in Great Britain will be satisfied with nothing less than the deprivation of American freedom, it seems highly necessary that something should be done to avert the stroke and maintain the liberty which we have derived from our ancestors. In fact, many who would become key actors and leaders in the future war took part in the response made by the Virginia House of Burgesses. The formal resolution that made the biggest splash was the second set of Virginia resolves written by George Mason and presented to the Burgesses by George Washington. Not to be confused with the first Virginia resolves written four years earlier in response to the Stamp Act, the Virginia resolves of 1769 were written in response to the Townsend Acts and stated that Parliament could not, within her constitutional bounds, tax Virginians without approval from its legislature. They also supported Samuel Adams' circular letter and decried the policy permitting American colonists to be taken to England for trial. On the matter of taxes, George Washington presented the following, resolved that it is the opinion of this committee that the sole right of imposing taxes on the inhabitants of this His Majesty's colony and dominion of Virginia is now, and ever hath been, legally and constitutionally vested in the House of Burgesses, lawfully convened according to the ancient and established practice with the consent of the council and of his majesty, the king of Great Britain, and or his governor for the time being. Addressing the policy of permitting American colonists to be taken to England for trial, Washington presented for the House, and it passed this resolve. Resolved, that is the opinion of this committee, that all trials for treason or for any felony or crime whatsoever committed and done in this His Majesty's said colony and dominion by any person or persons residing in this colony, suspected of any crime whatsoever committed therein, and sending such person or persons to places beyond the sea to be tried, is highly derogatory of the rights of British subjects, as thereby the privilege of being tried by a jury from this vicinage, as well as the liberty of summoning and producing witnesses on such trial, will be taken away from the party accused. The final resolve pays loyal homage to the king before asking again for the right to a fair trial, a surprising conclusion to such a document. The flowery language for the crown of the conclusion outdoes the rest of the document. Resolved that it is the opinion of this committee that a humble, dutiful, and loyal address be presented to His Majesty to assure him of our inviolable attachment to his sacred person and government 
and to beseech his royal interposition as the father of all his people, however remote from the seat of his empire, to quiet the minds of his loyal subjects of this colony, and to avert from them those dangers and miseries which will ensue from the seizing and carrying beyond the sea any person residing in America, suspected of any crime whatsoever, to be tried in any other manner than by the ancient and long-established course of proceeding. The royal governor responded by promptly dissolving the assembly. Its members moved to a nearby tavern and passed a boycott agreement after the example of 